right, welcome back to On the Streets. I'm your host, Jordan Orada, and I'm here today with Dr. Adam Graham, the neuro director at Rose Medical Center here in Denver, and one of the blue sky neurologists who covers neurology at all of our Health One facilities. Today, we're going to be discussing some common neurological deficits, how to assess for them, and what they mean. Welcome, Dr. Graham. Thank you for having me. So, why don't you start and just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a neurologist? Well, as you said, uh, I'm a neurologist with Blue Sky Neurology. Um, did my residency and fellowship training at the University of Colorado here locally. And right after completing that training, I joined with Blue Sky. And I've just been very fortunate to have such a strong and dedicated team around us. Uh, as far as choosing neurology, I think it's, you know, in, in medical school, you start to do rotations of all the different specialties and see which areas are of interest. And I was just drawn to neurology based on the variety of the age of patients that we see everything from young to old, and also the uh, variety of conditions that we treat. So you weren't that uh, four-year-old who was just fascinated by the brain and knew (laughs) that you were going to be a neurologist? I think at four, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. (laughs) (laughs) Like all good four-year-olds, right? Well, so let's get into some of the meat here. What we're really trying to figure out is how we can help paramedics, EMTs in the field, dig into those patients who are having some kind of neurodeficit, figure out how to best assess them when you're suspicious of stroke or something else, and identify what's actually going on. Everyone's pretty familiar with the FAST exam. That's what we've been doing for almost two decades, and that stands for face, arms, speech, and time. And we've done a ton of research over the years looking for different exams would you say that that is still a good, valid exam pre-hospitally, or should we really start as an industry looking at something different like race, LAMS, CPSSS, or the ELVO? There's, I mean, tons of different ones, tons of research. What do you think? I think the FAST uh, is, is still a very good method to be able to identify stroke victims. One of the additions that we're making onto it, though, now is called BFAST, which stands for balance and eyes, as well as the other components of the FAST score just to try and catch some of those posterior circulation and large vessel occlusion patients. And that seems to kind of be the trend, like the CPSSS also adds the severity, and we're just kind of adding one other step to try to really rule out that large vessel piece. Mm -hmm. Let's get into the large vessel piece for a little bit and talk about how do you identify that and why is that so important now? Why are we thinking about that? So the large vessel occlusion, uh, we call that LVO patients, they are the patients that we really see the dramatic turnarounds, you know, when we're able to uh, treat them in a timely manner with the appropriate interventions, specifically intraarterial therapy. So those patients oftentimes on their presentation, they'll have what we call a gaze deviation, meaning their eyes will be sort of fixed towards one way. They may neglect the opposite side. And if it's uh, a stroke on the left side of the brain, they'll usually have very little to no speech. Or if it's on the right side of the brain, they may not be aware at all that they are not moving their left side. So it's really the more dramatic presentations. And for those patients, quick treatment is of the utmost importance because those are the patients that the strokes can be absolutely devastating if we're not able to get treatment in time. But those are also the same patients, again, that we have the most dramatic turnarounds when we're able to successfully treat them. And I think another really important thing to know about these large vessel occlusions is typically patients will have collateral circulation around these and enough flow that 
tissue isn't totally dead and we can actually open those up and have a better outcome outside of that traditional three and a half, four hour window that we're using TPA. Um, can you talk about that and how that process even works? Right. So we know, you know, with stroke, time is brain. And so we want to treat patients as quickly as possible. We have a limited time window that we can offer the IV TPA. And there's also a limited degree of just how much clot that systemic TPA can really dissolve. When patients have the large vessel occlusion, some of them do have that good collateral flow. And so they don't always uh, fall within that time window that's the IV TPA is restricted to, but they can actually still be a candidate for intraarterial therapy. The studies are, you know, indicating up to 24 hours, but that's just because that's what's been studied. And so we are seeing patients who are being treated with the intraarterial therapy beyond that time frame based on supportive imaging. And, and that's all based around the imaging and what kind of imaging do we do? Is there something different here in the hospital that you're looking at when you have a large vessel versus just a run-of-the-mill stroke? So the, the first critical scan is the CAT scans. The CAT scan uh, rules out any hemorrhage and shows us early ischemic changes. Now, at the very beginning signs of a stroke clinically, a, a person's CAT scan may look completely normal. The next study is the CT angiogram, and that's to look at the blood vessels in detail all the way from the heart up through the brain. And then at some facilities, we are doing various types of perfusion scans to look at the speed of the flow of the blood through those blood vessels. From a treatment option standpoint, the perfusion scan is additive, but it's not always absolutely necessary. There are times we can make the treatment decisions based on the CAT scan and the CT angiogram alone. And so when we're thinking about destination, I mean, here, especially in the metro area, we have a lot of great facilities, a lot of comprehensive centers, a lot of comprehensive capable centers, and a lot of primary centers. So when we're doing our exam in the field, how do you determine what are you seeing, what does this mean, and where is the most appropriate place to bring that type of patient? Well, certainly early EMS activation is key, and that's one of the things that we really try to preach to the public, is that even if the hospital looks like it's a short distance away, don't decide to drive yourself. Call EMS, because they can activate the stroke alert process before they even arrive to the hospital. In Denver, the policy is still at this point for patients to be taken to a primary stroke center, regardless of whether we think they have a large vessel occlusion or not. From there, we can transfer patients quickly to a facility that's capable of treating those large vessel occlusions, uh, either a thrombectomy-capable facility like Skyridge or a comprehensive-capable facility like a Swedish. And I think that's really important to know is, you know, the protocols locally here, this is not always going to be extraordinarily pertinent for people listening outside the metro area, but locally, and I think this generally is true for the rest of the country, everyone's really trying to push for capturing the large vessels pre-hospitally and figuring out, can we accurately identify these patients and get them to the right center? And is it worth that time spend? And, and there's been a ton of research over the last five and 10 years, and still nothing has really been conclusive. So I think it's still a great practice to, to know your centers, know where you are, and go to the closest, most appropriate center, which generally is going to be a primary center, because they can do the imaging rapidly, figure out if it's a bleed or not, like you said. And then if it's appropriate to get TPA, start the TPA, and then figure out the transport. And that is really the fastest way to get patients the care they need. Would you say that's accurate from the hospital side, the neurology side? Yeah, I think so. You know, some of that delves into a larger discussion of the different hospital networks and how they 
organize which comprehensive centers that, that they send patients to. But I would say just getting patients very quickly to a treatment-capable facility, uh, and generally those are going to be your primary stroke centers, to get the process started is always a good decision. Yeah, and like you mentioned, I think the public doesn't always appreciate that while an ambulance is expensive, it is scary, it seems like an extra step because the hospital is just a few blocks away, they have that line of communication with the ER, with the neuro team, and when they do that exam and can activate that, the scanner spun up, everybody's ready, the whole team is waiting for you, and that can create a much faster input than someone walking through the front doors, having a stop in the ER, do a full exam, wait, and and all those steps, right? Absolutely. We're finding at all of our centers that our treatment times are always much faster with patients brought in by EMS with that pre-notification compared to patients that are, you know, walk-ins, as we call them. A patient might think, well, it's going to take the ambulance five minutes to get there. Well, we more than make up that time with the pre-notification, just based on, like you said, having all the resources there and waiting and ready for the patient, having the CAT scan cleared and ready for the patient, it does make a difference. Yeah. So let's go back to kind of the focus on neurodeficits. And what you had mentioned before about large vessels, those are the ones that appear as your just kind of obvious patient is totally gorked out, drooping on the right, very, very severe deficits. Those are generally large vessels? Yeah, generally those are what the large vessels look like. Those are the ones that you can identify very easily, very early on. Occasionally we are surprised, you know, because patients will have those very good collateral flows still active. And with that, it's not until we do the CT angiogram that we see, you know, the large vessel occlusion present. And so I think the tougher strokes pre-hospitally to identify and in the hospital to treat are those more subtle ones, the little bit smaller ones. What are some pearls that you can give pre-hospital providers to add to their, their basic FAST exam to help identify more or find more things? Because sometimes they're, they're more subtle findings, um, you know, finger to nose. What are some of those types of things that you guys do as part of a much more robust exam that a paramedic or EMT can, can start to practice? I think the biggest uh, sort of red flag or, or something that should get your attention is when patients say they have a sudden onset of the symptoms. Strokes don't usually give you a gradual onset. Not often is it real stuttering, but it can be. But when patients say, hey, I just suddenly had tingling on the right side, or I suddenly started talking funny, or I suddenly saw double, or I suddenly was off balance, that sudden onset is really a big key uh, to raising the question of stroke. And then from an exam standpoint, really the, the be fast, just looking at a person's balance, that's a tough one. You know, that's sort of its own topic, topic in its own way with the posterior circulation strokes. But uh, having a sudden onset difficulty with balance, particularly if they're continuing to lean or fall to one side, and then you know if there's a gaze deviation with their eyes and and you know unilateral weakness and speech changes. So with respect to different exam things, one thing that's very helpful that I hear from EMS is actually how the patient was able to walk or not in transferring from you know, their house to the gurney and, and so forth. Because a lot of times the process with stroke is so streamlined once they get to the hospital on the bed, they may not walk unless we specifically get them out of bed again to try and walk. So if the EMS says, yeah, the patient said they were suddenly off balance and when they were walking from their couch to our gurney, they were consistently drifting and falling to the right. They were very off balance. They required our assistance. Then that saves us some valuable minutes when we do our evaluation in the hospital because we may not necessarily have them get up to walk again if they're still symptomatic. So just a basic road test in the field can be really, really valuable for that balance piece. Absolutely. Even if it's just stand and pivot out of bed. I mean, certainly we have some pretty brittle patients who 
we don't want to overexert, but to be able to capture that balance piece, because generally when she gets to the hospital, it's straight from the gurney onto the bed, straight from the bed into the CAT scan, and they're not getting up again. So that's a really valuable piece that we can capture pre-hospitally. Absolutely. I think that's a something that a lot of people don't realize. And if someone's unable to stand at all, I think that is a really good sign too. If it's my left side is completely flaccid, I can't do it. Great. There's a red flag, right? Right. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things that we're trying to judge to dictate how aggressive we are with our treatment is how disabling the symptoms are. And so a person may be able to lift their legs and arms in bed and may be able to do some basic coordination things, but if suddenly they can't walk and their baseline is they can, that's disabling, you know, and so that sometimes by itself is an indication for treatment. And that that's going to be a life-changing treatment if that person walks out walking again versus not walking. That's huge. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about seizures and some of those red herrings as we're looking at neurodeficits. We have a lot of patients here who have cluster headaches, who have migraines, who have seizures, who have Bell's palsy. Is there any way to throw some of those out of our differentials in the pre-hospital setting? What are some of those keys or do they always kind of stay in until you get imaging? Some of them are tough to exclude stroke. So generally, if a person has a seizure at the onset, your suspicion for stroke goes down, but you can't really exclude it. And similarly, if a person has a headache that's severe at the onset, you worry about bleeding first and foremost. But if the bleeding's not there, then you also do question, is it some variation of a migraine? Unfortunately, there's not a fast test to be able to exclude migraine. So we have to look at the bigger picture overall in terms of what are their risk factors? Have they had similar symptoms before? Are there other features on their exam that are inconsistent? You know, are they telling you they can't move their left arm and then when they're distracted they're moving their left arm just fine. So all those things we look at from an EMS provider standpoint I think the speed at which uh, you all work is fantastic and and so I wouldn't want to sacrifice that for really trying to develop a lot of the nuance. Okay good excellent. So I have one more question kind of on those red herrings piece. Um, we have patients who we discharge with something called conversion disorder or something like that that primarily is a maybe a psychiatric issue but they can can present with extraordinarily genuine deficits. I know in the field I had a patient who was so obtunded and I, you know, I had this sneaking suspicion it wasn't legit, but this patient was very legit and I ended up nasally intubating this patient and they took the tube and I was shocked to find out there was no findings, there was no drugs, there was no issues and they discharged with conversion disorder. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So if we could ever figure out conversion disorder, that, that would be a, a major breakthrough, honestly, from a medical standpoint, because there are patients that genuinely suffer from that. And it's not something that patients are necessarily trying to do. It's, it's their body's reaction to something. And, and so we try to reiterate to patients that that, that, that is a real condition. And as you said, patients with conversion disorder can look all the world like a stroke. And anybody who's treated a lot of strokes has treated a patient with TPA who's actually having conversion. Because in the small time window that you have, you may not get the answer. And the only way you may know for sure is once you get an MRI. And so because some of those patients presenting can be very disabling appearing symptoms, they'll get treated. And unfortunately, the risk with the TPA in those patients is exceedingly low, almost zero. So I'll generally counsel patients to say, if this is a stroke, then we would want to treat you with this medicine. And if this is not a stroke, the medicine won't do you any good, but there's a very slim percentage that it would do any harm as well. So given the possibilities and the severity of the deficits, oftentimes we are treating. Because I've had patients too where they come in very confused and altered, and there's just something about it. You know, it, maybe it was a sudden onset, families telling you, no, this is nothing they've ever done before, they're otherwise healthy. And you say, you know, it's just not matching up from a stroke pattern standpoint, but it certainly could be a stroke. And lo and behold, I've treated a patient like that, and the next day, 
yes, imaging showed that it was in fact a stroke. So you can never be too sure. Yeah, so keep that index of suspicion high. Stroke is going to cause you serious issues. Conversion disorder is not. So you always have to treat for the worst when appropriate. And I think that's a great point is that I mean, we don't know a lot about conversion disorder, but what we know is they're not just faking. They're not just putting on a show to mess with you. This is a legitimate medical issue, and you always, even if you know they have a history of it, have to keep that index really high and treat it like it's a stroke because, like you said, it might be. Yeah. One of the things that can be another red flag from a conversion disorder standpoint is if they've had the same you know, set of symptoms repeatedly. So if a patient tells you this is the 10th time I've had my TIA, that's a big red flag that it probably wasn't a TIA to begin with. And I think that's a great transition into TIAs. How do you think we should deal with patients who in the field have had deficits, we've seen them, and they resolve with us? Is that still an emergent return? We're super excited. You know, what they've always taught us pre-hospital is that this is, you know, a, a precursor to a larger stroke. True or false? Very true. Okay. And so index of suspicion on those still extraordinarily high, very concerned for these patients. And and how does a paramedic translate that appropriately and not feel like they're not going to buy my story, like they're, they're fixed, they're better? And how do I make them understand that this was real and now they're better? I honestly wouldn't worry about that at all because we've all seen those patients that come in with pretty dramatic symptoms and then they're better rapidly right in front of us. And so when a paramedic or an EMT tells us that, I have no reason to doubt it whatsoever. I mean, that thought doesn't even cross my mind. Like there would be zero motivation for EMS to be making that up. So I, I wouldn't worry about that in the slightest. And, you know, we do see a fair amount of patients that come in through our stroke alert process. You know, when they arrive at the, you know, what we call the launch pad, we have those at our different HCA facilities. And, you know, it was pre-notification for aphasia, right-sided weakness. And by the time they arrive, the symptoms are mostly resolved. And I would much rather have that and still go through that regular stroke process than have them saying, oh, well, they're kind of getting better. Let's go ahead and stand it down because sometimes they do get a little bit worse. Like maybe their blood pressure drops a little bit or just some of those collaterals start to fail and then they get a little bit worse. And if we've sort of stood down the team, then we lose that extra benefit of the pre-hospital notification. Fantastic. So once we've done our exam, we feel confident that we kind of know what's going on with our patient. What are some of the most important things to communicate to the hospital to alert your team to make sure that you know what to expect, what resources to start mobilizing? So the number one question that we'll always ask is, when was the patient last known normal? And that's a tough one because family members or, you know, staff at a nursing home, they'll oftentimes tell you when they saw the patient different but they can't always be certain when the patient was normal. And so that's a really big question is to try and figure out when the symptoms weren't present. And that's the number one question we'll ask. The number two question is usually if they're on any sort of blood thinners. So EMS has done really good recently as far as having a good med list uh, whenever it's possible to help us figure that out. And then if possible, if they've had any history of bleeding in their brain, any recent surgeries, any recent internal bleeding, those are sometimes harder to come by depending on what your resources are on the scene. And also just because you're trying to move so quickly and gather so much information. And then lastly, but also very pertinent is what's their baseline? You know, is this somebody who at baseline is ambulatory and conversant or at baseline, is this somebody who, who really just you know, is in bed and, and not able to really participate much with the outside world because that will dictate some of our treatment options as well. Perfect. So good history, good physical. What else do you have to add that I maybe haven't covered? I don't know. I think you've done a great job with your questions. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. So I guess to wrap it up, when we're thinking about doing neuro exams and looking at neuro deficits in a pre-hospital, FAST is still a really good way to examine that. But now adding B for balance, doing a little road test, figuring out what's baseline, 
is this patient going to have a huge improvement in quality of life if we treat them, or are they going to have minimal impact and getting clear communication to the hospital? Yeah, absolutely. And some providers, you kind of hinted at it with some of the other questions, are cautious about activating the stroke alert process, I would say to not worry about that piece. You know, we would much rather be activated early on and be able to say, okay, let's stand down. Everything's looking better. Or we think it's something else than have somebody show up and and be sort of behind the eight ball. Yeah. Activate early and often. And I mean, that's what EMS is there to do, right? So Mm -hmm. do your job out there, guys. (laughs) Our guest today has been Dr. Adam Graham. He is the neuro director at Rose Medical Center. And thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.